Well, my name is Erica, but I feel like I really am Debbie Downer this morning. Uh, not, no offense to people named Debbie, because you aren't a downer. <laughs> but I, all these positive messages about delight and hope and the benefits of dwelling in the life-giving word and memorizing scripture. And then I walk up to those cool kids and say, but what about disease and despair and disaster? (laughs) And you can hear the womp, womp, womp. (laughs) So that's me today, and I am sorry about that, but I believe there is profit in it, not just because God's Word says it, but because I have experienced it. And today, um, I, I told Tracy I can't teach this year. I don't feel like I have capacity for that. But I just ask that you would show me grace as I speak from my brokenness, as I share my heart about what God has done through the past two years in my life and how he has used the process of lament to help restore me, give me joy, and help me persevere. I know that my situation is not nearly as bad as it could be, but I do feel a responsibility to share vulnerably, maybe as a springboard for your own journey of lament, to enhance it or for you to start incorporating lament into your spiritual disciplines. So I just... Please give me grace, please be patient with me, and please understand my heart for you, that I want this to benefit you and bless you, and um, I want us all to praise God more fully because of what he can do and has done. As many of you know, on December 22nd, 2020, um, just a few days before Christmas, and... (laughs) As, as it goes, just living normal life, I'd gotten my hair done that morning and was ready to pick coffee up um, to take to meet baby Graydon, um, Justin and Carly Jones' new baby. I got a call, and they said, if you're in the car, pull off the side of the road. They told me that my biopsy results had shown that I did indeed have a cancerous tumor in my right breast. And what followed, as some of you know, from your own difficult experiences were months of humiliating doctor's appointments with more doctors and nurses seeing and handling my breasts than I think even have handled Dolly Parton's, okay? (laughs) There was blood work, more tests, the difficult doctor's appointments, hearing statistics, your life measured out in statistics, and then the pressure of making the right decision so that those statistics are in your favor. The hard conversations with your young kids, 10-year-old clinging to you, Like it's the last time I'll ever see you. 
for your old bearing with you when you're so exhausted. You're trying to spend time with her, but resting your head on the table. Drastic changes in my life, my family, my work, and my ministry. Cancer isn't just a bump in the road. It changes life forever. At my first mammogram that I had after my treatments, post-surgery and radiation, I just had this idea that if everything came back fine, showing that everything was successful, and I heard the words that I was officially cancer-free, that my life would just return back to normal, and, you know, there'd be some adjustments to make, but I could just pick up where I left off before my diagnosis. And nothing could have been further from the truth. First of all, I wasn't taking into effect that I'm still in treatments for the next five to ten years. I take a little pill this big that has pretty unpleasant side effects every day. I went from not taking the very blessed position, I realized, of not taking any medicine except for maybe a Tylenol on the occasion I had a headache, to now needing two pill boxes full of pills each day. Next, I came to realize that my body had been in fight or flight for a year, and when I got that cancer-free diagnosis, um, that label that was so great and I was so thankful for, but my body crashed. I was exhausted and had very little left to give in any area of my life, and I really was worse than I was when I was in the height of treatments and surgery. I was emotionally, spiritually, and physically spent. I had nothing left. But through all the support that God has provided through um, Mayo, I was able to meet with a therapist who specialized in cancer stress management, acknowledging that this is a huge life change and you need support in the stress of it. And God used her, although she wasn't a Christian, um, all truth is God's truth, and some of what she said I was able to benefit from greatly, even spiritually. He, God used her to help me identify my desperate need to grieve, to count my losses, to name them, and to pour out my heart, my hurts, my fears before him in lament. And I didn't want to do this because I knew I would have to dig up a lot of things that were just easier to shove down over the course of the year and in some ways just keep limping along, just trying to make it. It really, though, became an issue of obedience to Jesus. Was I going to obey him and cast all my cares on him? Or was I pridefully and foolishly going to say, I got this, I can, I can keep going, I don't need to deal with it. Matt and I talked about this after my appointment, and I told him I didn't want to do it. <laughs> 
but knew that I needed to, and so he said, I'll, let's pay, you can go away for a night or two by yourself, you know, to a hotel, and take the time you need to grieve before the Lord, whatever that looked like. And so that's what I did. I know lament can kind of be um, an unusual word that we don't always hear about in our culture, um, but it, it's a biblical word, and lament um, can be defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's to mourn from the deepest places of your heart. And anyone can grieve this way, and in some cultures this is a normal practice, but for Christians it always has a spiritual purpose. What I have found and what we see in Scripture is that sometimes this process of lament, the grief is so deep that it affects us from the inside out. And we see people in the Scripture tearing their clothes. That's how deep their grief is. There are outward physical expressions of this. We see them lying face down in grief. It has just taken them low and to the floor. It is a grief that is deep. So what did this process look like for me? And that, this is where I, I want to share, if you would, turn to Psalm 25. It's a psalm of lament, and I, I'm not going to take you through everything I did that weekend and um, all the ways that um, I, I practiced lament, but I do want to share a little bit, because sometimes it's helpful to at least have an example and then figure out for yourself what works from you, what you want to um, take or leave from that. So I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. I loosely followed um, a framework of lament that um, is recommended in this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And the author recommends um, the framework of turning to God, addressing him first. Second, bringing our complaints before him in blunt language, naming that specific pain or injustice. Third, he recommends asking boldly, where we call on God to act and to resolve this difficulty. And then fourth, where we choose to trust, where we affirm his worthiness to be trusted. So I followed that framework, and the first thing I did was decide on what psalm, and obviously I decided on Psalm 25. But one thing that helped me with that is, again, this resource there are different psalms of lament. Some are very personal, and some are more for um, corporate congregational use where, as a group, people are grieving together. So I knew I wanted a personal psalm of lament, and the personal psalms of lament are listed in um, the back of this book. So I skimmed through some of those and um, decided that Psalm 25 captured the heart of, of what, what I felt I needed to express before God. So the first thing, Psalm 25, 
the psalm opens, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Another version says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And so I started addressing God and saying, God, here is my soul. It is heavy. It hurts. You know that. You've seen it all along. But now I need your grace to help me see it. I need to see the pain and the ways cancer has disfigured the inner parts of me. I see the outer parts. I see the scars. But now I need to see those inward scars that it's left. And I need your help. I lift my soul up to you and ask for grace for you to help me see it. And then I said, oh my God, I trust in you. In you I trust. I know that you can help me face this grief and these losses. I trust that you have me tight in your grip. And with the courage that you give me, I can look at my soul. I know and trust that you are the one who can fix what I see or point me to someone who can help me fix it or go on that path toward resolution. You are my source of comfort and hope. And then I started that second step of bringing my complaint before him. And that started with verse 2, do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. And I turned that, that word shame and, and took it as my own. And I listed out the ways that cancer has brought me shame. The ways that it has made me feel humiliated, distressed, used, and rejected. It had taken my ambition and my energy, my physical strength, my optimism for the future, my sleep, my stamina, my hormones, my kids' security that I'll be here for them, my kids' innocence of immortality, my security with Matt for the future that we would grow old together, my ability to help Matt in ministry. We had always been a team. And for those of you who come in the past two years, I know some of you don't even know me. And that has been hard to step back and to um, relinquish those things that I was used to doing in ways that I was used to supporting Matt in ministry. It shamed me because I couldn't bear others' burdens like I wanted to. I didn't have room for it. I felt like what I was carrying was all I could handle. It shamed me because I couldn't be a good friend. I couldn't live the active life that I was used to where I could juggle several things fairly successfully. It took away my freedom of schedule because there are so many doctor's appointments. And I would be there for hours and hours at times. And then I 
listed in blunt language the way cancer felt like it had triumphed over me because cancer was my enemy. And all I could see was ways that I felt like it was triumphing over me. It was always a factor when I thought of the future because I wondered if I would be alive to experience that future thing or if it would have returned and what my life would look like then. It was the lens through which I saw the whole world. Myself, my relationships, my future, my hobbies, my, my domestic duties, my work duties. It dictated all that I could and couldn't do in a day. It felt like it called the shots in my life. And it, remi- it was a constant reminder of how quickly life could change that I just was constantly carrying uncertainty with me in a way I hadn't before. It tainted places for me. I first found the lump when we were on, um, when we were away for a little getaway in Port Ritchie. And even now, when I think of Port Ritchie, I get sick to my stomach. And there are so many doctor's offices, ultrasound places. Orange Park Medical Center, where we went to pick up my mammogram film. There's just so many places that would just grip my heart with anxiety when I would even drive by them and um, just felt like it was popping up at unexpected times. And it aged me beyond, you know, where I was by about 15 years. And to just have that happen in a course of a few weeks... (laughs) few months um, is very humbling. So I just, by God's grace, poured this out of my soul and just named these things. And then I went to asking him boldly. And there are so many verses that I'll reference through Psalm 25, um, that I just ask him to resolve these things, not even so much physically that I wasn't praying that it, cancer would never, wouldn't return or things like that, but just that um, he would help me to heal emotionally, to help me heal spiritually, um, and that he would help me see a way forward. And so I ask him to turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. And that was a statement of reality, asking him to turn to me and give me his graciousness in in this shame and in this defeat. I told, um, I asked him in verse 17 to bring me out of this distress In verse 18, I ask him to consider my affliction and my trouble and to forgive me of the ways I've sinned in it and of the sin that causes all this brokenness and hurt and sickness. Verse 19, I ask him to consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Again, these enemies of cancer that were attacking me physically and all of the shame that it brought with it. And it reminded me that he cares about the details. That word violent hatred, it wasn't enough to just say that the foes hated him, but, but 
God cared about the detail, that they didn't just hate him, they hated him with violent hatred. And to know that God cares about the details of the way that hurt, those enemies are affecting me, um, I ask him to consider that. I ask him, verse 20, to guard my soul and deliver me. I ask him to not let me be put to shame, to see these, these losses in a different light. And I ask him in verse 21 to help integrity and uprightness to preserve me. That just because things were bad didn't give me a pass on, bad, on having bad character. <laughs> that that what couldn't be an excuse for me to sin. And then in doing that, there came a surrendering. As I asked God to do these things, I was giving it to him. And that led me to step four, choosing to trust him, to recalling why he can be trusted. Verse eight, that he is good and upright. Verse 12, that he instructs sinners in his way. Verse 9, that he leads the humble in what is right and teaches us his way, that he was going to keep teaching me. Verse 10, that all his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness, even the path of cancer. That I could say, I see your love. I see your promise to me of covenant love and protection, even on the path of cancer. He helped me to say, in verse 20, a statement of faith, I take refuge in you. And in verse 21, I wait for you. Those are statements of faith like we just heard. So I share that as just a really practical example of how God's word helped me to grieve and to face um, those losses. And to end, I have um, a few takeaways that God has helped me, is helping me to realize that I hope will be encouraging to you um, as you implement this practice into your life or to enhance the ways you're already using it. Since almost a year has passed, I realize first that we become what we carry. If we choose to bury and carry our hurt, it becomes the main thing that defines our lives. Instead of just experiencing a horrible and difficult sorrow, it is actually, it becomes the lens through which we see ourselves. It becomes our identity. And God doesn't want his children to let that sorrow define them. He tells us, in fact, 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. And I found that lament is perhaps the main way I can obey 1 Peter 5, 7. There are other verses, cast your burdens on the Lord, Psalm 55, 22. 
Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And these are commands. So lamenting is a way we can obey these commands to cast our cares on him. And obeying this command enables us, by his grace, to obey another command, which is to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Lament gives us room to care for others well in their grief because we have room to do it. We aren't so caught up in carrying our own that we don't have room for others. We cast that on the Lord and I say, give me your burden. I want to help you carry it. Number two, whatever substitutes lament becomes what we are looking to to save us from the difficulty. Whatever substitutes lament becomes what we are looking to to save us from the difficulty. Is it our will that we're looking to to save us? Do we want to be seen as a fighter, as a survivor? Is it to uphold that perception others have of us that We want them to keep seeing us as a strong person. And when we admit that we have needs, and when we open ourselves up to lament, we see how weak we really are. Is it working excessively? Is that what we're doing instead of lamenting? Are we throwing ourselves into something that will distract us from dealing with the grief? Or have we gone to the other extreme and become so preoccupied with the effects of sorrow and so self-focused that we've developed an unhealthy dependence on others when we should be doing things for ourselves? Third, just because things could be worse doesn't mean they aren't hard. Just because things could be worse doesn't mean they aren't hard. And I struggled with this because I would compare myself to others in those waiting rooms that, where I sat for hours, <laughs> and I would think, I don't have it that bad. Why, why do I feel such sorrow and grief? And God really convicted me about that and showed me that when I minimize my suffering, I'm minimizing Christ's suffering for me because he intends for his wounds to heal me. But in order for that to happen, I have to admit that I need to be healed. So I have to face the ways that I need to be healed, whether that is physically, emotionally, mentally, all of those those things, I have to admit that. I can't minimize it. I can't compare myself with what others are going through because just because it could be worse doesn't mean it's not hard. We need to admit our suffering and let his wounds supply the healing he intends for them to. Number four, don't bypass lament and skip straight to giving thanks and contentment and rejoicing. Don't be scared to grieve. It's not being ungrateful or complainy or doom and gloom, Eeyore-type person. 
I had some well-meaning people, no one in her church, um, tell me when I was sharing with them how full of sorrow and despair I was and how much I was struggling, tell me those types of things, (laughs) to be thankful and to rejoice in tribulation and to count it joy. And, you know, I thought, yes, that's true, but I had to hit pause on their advice because I knew that they meant well, but I knew God had a deeper work to do. And I can tell you that after practicing lament and bringing those griefs before him, my thankfulness is so much richer. My contentment is so much deeper, and my joy is so much fuller because I have dealt with that grief before him and and humbled myself and admitted my shame. And he has replaced some of that with joy and thankfulness and contentment. So I have had to learn to not skip to those too quickly. Two more. Number five, pursue lament as a spiritual discipline. We have gratefulness journals, and those are good things, but perhaps we need lament journals as well. I've found that it's not just the big things like cancer that need grieved. Just like we say to give thanks even in the small blessings, I have found that nothing is too small to grieve. We are all managing misery to some degree or another in this messed up world. And cultivating this practice of lament to help us through is key to making it. So I would encourage you to prioritize the practice of lament just like you prioritize praying and using your Bible, yes, to read and study it, but to read it and lament through it. And last, I am learning that lament is a gift of grace that is key to persevering in the Christian faith. Lament is a gift that is key to persevering in the Christian faith. Life is hard. The older we get, sometimes the more sorrow and trouble we see. And as we experience it, it is almost crushing at times. The cumulative effect of sorrow and ongoing disappointment weighs us down and we think how much more of this can I take before it does me in the hymn writer describes that the sorrows like sea billows rolling and that is our experience and we are knocked down and barely even have time to stand up and another wave is hitting us how are we going to make it through to the end We think maybe this will be the time that this relationship is mended. Or maybe this will be the time that rehab works for this loved one. Maybe this will be the time my dad realizes how much he's hurt me. Or my husband realizes how difficult he is making my life. Or my coworker sees how much of the load I'm carrying while they're slacking off. These are all cumulative griefs and sorrows that we bear. 
And these, the effect of those can render us useless or bitter or in perpetual despair. But as Joy Clarkson puts in her book, Aggressively Happy, she says time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds. In fact, time can make some wounds worse. So she implores us to tend to our sadness so that it becomes a deeper source for joy, love, joy and love, not deeper pain. I wish I could tie this all up with a pretty bow, but the truth is I'm still living in the unknown. And I was at Mayo yesterday with hands all over me again for an exam, and um, I would like to say that it didn't bother me, but there's always anxiety with that. I am in the middle of the mystery, just like you are. I think God gives us something better than a perfectly tied-up present. He gives us himself. And with him comes the expectation that nothing is impossible with him. It comes with the surprise and hope of watching and wondering, God, how are you going to do above and beyond what I can ask or think in this situation? And I did get a glimpse of that yesterday when I was at Mayo for therapy on my right arm because of complication caused from my cancer surgery. And I realized this morning that today is the two-year anniversary of when I first set foot on that campus, and I can't describe to you the feeling I had that day. The only way I can describe is that I felt like I was going to a funeral felt like I was visiting a cemetery, and I dreaded setting foot on that campus for the first time two years ago today. But yesterday, as I was pulling out of the parking lot, I realized the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and it's actively helping me to not fear death because of that, that he, instead of thinking of Mayo as a cemetery, as going to a funeral. He has made that place an empty tomb for me. And I can dance on the ground there, maybe like those women did who discovered the empty tomb that morning. Because I have confidence that death doesn't have a grip on me. I realize how God has used the grace of lament and mourning to turn that campus into a place of worship for me. If you're familiar with the idea of an Ebenezer in the Old Testament, it's what God wanted his people to do, to pile up stones to remember his work there so that when they would see it, they wouldn't forget how faithful he's been to him. And Mayo has become an Ebenezer of sorts for me because of how faithfully God has met me there in joy and in sorrow. And as I left, I worshipped him louder and with more wonder because of how kind and faithful he has been 
to carry my grief for me. And there is joy and praise with the mourning and sorrow. And there is peace where there wasn't. May God help us to obey him by casting our cares on him because he cares so much for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you love us. And perhaps we see your love most in our sorrows. Because it's there we experience the tenderness of your care for us. And Lord, it it makes it worth it to see you come near, to experience your kindness and loss and grief and shame and defeat. I pray that whatever the future has for us, that we will keep casting our cares on you, that you will help us to persevere no matter the sorrows that come like sea billows. I pray that you will help us to bear one another's burdens. I pray that you will make us a people who know how to suffer well, that suffering will give way to greater praise and worship, not bitterness, not doubting, not turning away from you, leaving you. Lord, do this work in us. We need you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.